Welcome to Through the Portal, a podcast from the Social Justice Portal Project, a national collaborative think tank hosted by the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Each month, grassroots activists and radical scholars will give voice to community struggles, national strategies, and sustainable alternatives for the future. The guest speakers, who are also Portal Project participants, explore what it means to walk through the portal of the current moment by centering racial and social justice issues. And we're your co-hosts. I'm Damon from Ergo, a movement builder, media maker, artist, and educator from the South Side of Chicago. Right on, and I'm Teresa Cordova, political economist, community-based planner. And today, we are, we are elated, we are privileged to have our brilliant guest, Esteban Kelly. Esteban is the executive director for the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives and is a worker owner and co-founder of AORTA, Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, where they work to build capacity and social justice skills through projects and trainings um, and intersectional consulting. We had a great conversation with Esteban where we zoomed in to the specifics of how you can manipulate or navigate the structures to establish a co-op to the larger societal transformations that are possible when we centered economic democracy in our human relationships. So let's go through the portal with Esteban Kelly. You're going to love this guy. We are grateful, we are excited, we are charged up, we are going through the portal with the brilliant Esteban Kelly. West Philly in the house. West Philly (laughs) in the house. Let's get to it. So Esteban, in in, in this realm, there's a there's a a tradition we like to warm up the space with. It's a two-part question. And this question is rooted around time. So define time however you will, whether it's this hour, this day, this season, this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Wow, you're going to open with that. That's that's how that, we're doing it. That feels that's like where, a closer. <laughs> no, no, that's how we jump in. Yeah. Let's get this pool. Um, water's fine. Wow. Well, the world is treating me pretty okay. It's, it's a lot. I feel like... Um, Everyone has Marvel mania thinking of time and even the popularization of the concept of the multiverse. Not that that's owned by the MCU. You know, there's a lot of conversations about how time shows up in different works of art and fiction and especially speculative and science fiction. And that's helpful for me because it makes it a little easier for me to check in about how I orient to time and not feel like a total weirdo. I'm like, no, 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 this is culture now. This is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so for me, time is not universal and it's not singular and that there are different temporalities that we're swimming through. And I feel that. There are Black temporalities. There are gendered temporalities. There are colonized temporalities. And depending on how you look at it, the kind of organizing that that I do and the work around building a solidarity economy and helping to expand understandings of what economic democracy even is, we're in a moment where people are finally getting ready. So the time isn't quite now for the masses. And that's fine. I don't see that being my work at this point in time, but it feels busy like that there's a quickening because 
there is a certain slice of organizers, intellectuals, of elites, people in foundations, people in think tanks, policymakers, and they're locking in. They're real. I mean, they're reading the tea leaves. They have professionals who are doing this for them. They're 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 engaged in foresight. They're engaged in forward thinking and and um, what it looks like to build resiliency or to create more anticipatory behavior so that we're not constantly reactive and responsive to just whatever the surprise of the day is. But like, we know what's coming. We know what's coming with climate chaos and crisis. We know what's coming with dealing with the revanchism of a white minority that's on its way and what it means for them to to shape or recast um, the very premise of democracy around minoritarian rule. And so all, all of those folks are like, hey, wait, economic democracy is actually central to all this stuff that we're moving toward and what it looks like to resource our allies or our potential allies in that work and make sure that they are aware of the networks, the actors, the thinkers who are building those frameworks and who can help to evangelize or counsel people who have a lot of agency right now, that feels new. That feels like what is just arriving. It's a moment that is early in what will become a a huger mainstreaming where hopefully it won't feel as busy individually (laughs) to me because we've already built out a wider community of, of leaders who are involved in this work and shaping it and who can articulate what it is we're trying to do um, and what that has to do with racial justice, with democracy, with liberation, all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I really like the way you're making the connection between the the bigger pictures, right, and the role that economic democracy has as a very central piece of that, right? And I love this idea of, right, meanwhile, we'll just be building away, right, building that capacity, expanding that circle, um, and building up some case uh, case examples of people doing this kind of work. Clearly, you know, you've been part of a of a co-op yourself and having having built up um, Aorta um, and you're heading up this uh, this network of organizations and, and co-ops. So I'm wondering if we could st- uh, start out asking you some questions about advice that you might have for folks who maybe want to start out building a co-op. What are some of their initial steps? What is it they need to do to to kick it off? I think it really depends on what their entry point is. And so I'm going to try to speak. If you're listening, I'm speaking to you. <laughs> but also I need, I, need, I, need to, I need to be a little bit generalizing because there are so many different circumstances. So maybe I'll toggle a bit between um, the, the conditions and some of the patterns that I'm seeing for who reaches out with these questions. Sometimes it's somebody who's like, I got my side hustle. I'm trying to make it not a side hustle. How do we formalize this into something like a worker cooperative? And as a founder or a co-founder, that's one way of orienting to the question. Some people are just like, no, no, I'm interested in workplace democracy. I'm interested in that way of building out my work life or being in community and it's not that I know that bookkeeping is my passion or gardening is the thing I'm trying to do or tech or whatever. So it's a bit of a like, this is how I want to work and not necessarily the what might not be as clear. And then there's some people who are like, well, no, I already have a business up and running or I work at one. 
And I just want to see that transition to something that is democratic and that has more worker power, worker self-direction involved in it. And then there are people who just get very big eyed and they think about what are the problems in my community or in our society and how do I design a business solution, a cooperative solution, an anti-capitalist solution to that problem using the cooperative form. Those are all different kinds of situations to be in, but it's why we, in part, part of the infrastructure that we have with the Worker Co-op Federation is we ensure at least one catch-all space where we have a monthly Worker Co-op startup webinar that we usually do uh, on one of the first Fridays of the month, and we get any number of those people. Some of the questions are that we have people sort of tick through and, and reflect on, well, who are you rolling with? Like, what, what actually is this beyond a vague concept? Like, who is your crew? Because it's going to be one thing to say, I am a founder. I'm trying to develop this thing that solves a big social problem and find the capital to finance it and yada, yada. That's a very different thing than being like, no, I'm just trying to take my catering company or my childcare side hustle and formalize it. And I'm not envisioning that this is going to be a workplace for a hundred people. It might be me and five other people. And that's a, that's a different kind of question. So it's going to be important there to really think about who are you recruiting? Like who are your co-founders in doing this? Who's going to be there to ride with you knowing that you might not see a return on your initial, whatever, sweat equity and investment of time for four or five years to come. And in fact, that was my experience by the time we were starting my worker co-op Aorta, where we founded it coming out of the U.S. Social Forum in 2010, and it was it was only half a dozen of us. And as one of the five or six co-founders, I had to ride in there for a good four years before we ran our first payroll and were incorporated. For us, it it was kind of a combination of those questions and scenarios. So we had to think about like what is the social problem we're solving. And again, it's going to be different depending on what your passion is, like what it is that you're trying to build out. But for us, we saw that movements were not connecting the dots, that they were overly siloed, that there was a lot of um, scrappiness. So there wasn't expertise around how we do what we're doing, that it led to cycles of burnout, and that there wasn't really political education inserted into the very movements of the people who were running, especially nonprofits, but also grassroots organizations, campaigns, projects. Those are the kinds of groups that we work with. And so sometimes the food security group or the gender justice group actually needed an analysis around white supremacy and racial capitalism, or they needed to understand capitalism. They're sitting there dealing with the problems, <laughs> the impact of food insecurity, but actually what does it look like to, to back up a bit and put this in the context of, imperialism, and even just understand some basic mechanisms of, of how capitalism created the problem in, it, in, mm -hmm. in the first place. Why they're experiencing that food insecurity. Yeah. For us, it was like, okay, actually, we don't necessarily need to solve all the problems and be on the front lines of all those things. Right now, our, our movements are busy with that. There's like a million and one things that are at that last mile. But internally, what does it look like to think about operations and how to build an agenda, how to run meetings effectively. So this is these are a lot of the kinds of questions that you got to think about, which is like, how do you find yourself? So there are these traditional market or business style questions that I know a lot of movement folks are 
allergic to less so nowadays. I think people are beginning to understand like, oh, markets are powerful. You can actually be anti-capitalist and think through questions of where's the money coming from? Who are your clients going to be? What's your niche? Who are your competitors? What's your value proposition? I do think we need different language for all this stuff because even saying it right now on a podcast makes me recoil a little bit. But <laughs> but the questions themselves are important ones to think through and answer up to and including, are you trying to invest and take the hit early to do a bunch of development and then boom, doors open? Or is this going to be something that is iterative, that you can do it as a side hustle, you can moonlight, you can do pop-ups, you can have Venmo, you can be 1099 freelancing until the moment where over the course of years, you have your portfolio of clients, you have a little bit of information about your cash flow or whatever it is to then know, okay, it's time to quit your day job and you can make this your real thing. Those are different kinds of questions. How much, how much do you think context matters? Does state law matter, for example, to enable the establishment of entities, enterprises? That is one of the early orthodoxies that we smashed. So a lot of the sort of predecessors from the, the previous generation of cooperative organizers and activists, a lot of the priorities when I started doing this work was around like, oh, geez, do you know there isn't even a worker co-op statute in half of the states, um, let alone all the states. Now let's turn that into our advocacy priorities and like see what we can do to establish. And then it turned out that that's not what we needed to do. So a beautiful human being named Clark Arrington, who is a black co-op lawyer, he was the internal counsel for the Federation of Southern Co-ops back in the 70s. He's the counsel for an organization I co-founded in Philly called the Philadelphia Area Cooperative Alliance. He was the attorney for the working world, which is now expanding to a group called Seed Commons that does these non-extractive loans, um, including for some of the co-ops there in Chicago, where y'all are, um, like New Era Windows. So they financed right. that. So Clark was the genius guy who we just inducted into the National Cooperative Hall of Fame last year, I think 2021. And one of his innovations is he was like, why are we running around and insisting that we need to have the state codify a certain corporate statute for what it means to be a worker co-op and then use that statute. What if we just take the flexibility of what currently exists, such as LLCs, limited liability corporations? Anyone can set up an LLC. We can do one tomorrow. What are you doing tonight? We can set up an LLC this afternoon. Uh-oh. And then, Black Twitter's and then ears set up just, our, just parked up. Exactly, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <"Uh-oh." laughs> uh, and then instead, we do the governance ourselves. So we codify our bylaws to be cooperative. We don't need to wait on the state. So now you can be in Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, North Carolina, any of these states that don't have a worker co-op statute, and you can set up a corporation and design it as a worker co-op. That's just like one example. I mean, it happens to be one of the biggest ones and, and, a, and a huge part of why we've seen such a huge proliferation of the worker cooperative development, especially for immigrant workers and um, a lot of folks in the, the service sector, uh, domestic workers, childcare, healthcare, a lot of undocumented workers who are in a lot of ways the largest demographic who are entering the worker co-op space. Um, so really people were seeing worker co-ops as a option to opt out of the traditional economy. And now they see it as a way to opt in. Why are we being extracted from and left behind? Cooperatives can be actually a portal. Nice, nice, nice. That's nice. That's smooth. <laughs> we like that, huh, Damon? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm here. <laughs> a way to access what's going on 
uh, with economic growth. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, women immigrant communities, mostly uh, Mexicanas and folks from in Central America, for example, to set up a lot of uh, worker cooperatives here in Chicago. You know, and I think part of it is that sort of cultural connection from where they originated, right? And they brought some of that idea and, the, and that perspective, right? That cooperative engagement. But you're right. It's it's an, it's an, it's interesting what you just said, right? And it does explain, I think, perhaps all that proliferation. But it was interesting because we did have some folks say to us that they were having a hard time establishing because of the limits of not having the state statute. And then there was some work done to sort of get some of that state statute. But I, but I think, you know, Clark's idea, right? Uh, let's just do this LLC and set up our bylaws. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's a it's a both end. I mean, it doesn't hurt to have a state statute. It makes it actually easier to organize if there is a statute, because then you can literally just pull out the public records and say, well, how many co-ops are incorporated according to the secretary of state? Right now, what we're doing is running around just trying to chase <laughs> trace organizations down being like, hey, we heard about you through Twitter or we saw your website. Is it real? Are you really a worker co-op? Can you share us your bylaws? Like, What is your deal? And relying on people to report to us and to get in touch with the, the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops or our sister nonprofit, the Democracy at Work Institute, so that we can even capture the data. We don't know. I mean, the government runs, we're all familiar with the census they do for the people. They also do an economic census. They do a business census. And so they go, they do door knocking for all the commercial corridors. I mean, it's the U.S. economy. They're counting how many businesses are there. They're not running around being like, are you a cooperative? We did advocate for them to add that question back in. Um, so I think in future business censuses, it will be included. But still, it's not super rigorous. It's a lot of self-reporting. Like, what does that mean? And of course, whatever language they put it for the Census Bureau was some mealy mouth like, do you identify as an autonomous, self-affiliating group? But whatever the hell it is, it's just like, y'all, are you doing co-ops or what? <laughs> like, what is your- I, I, I love the question, is it real? Because I was thinking as I was hearing you talk, I, I was curious about like how internalization shows up. So, you know, what I hear from from, you know, your experience is that so many folks come to economic democracy and cooperative forms of enterprise or organizing, you know, usually being provoked by some justice informed ambition, right? Some liberatory, some, you know, movement adjacent, you know, like you said, you know, folks who just like, we want to be working together in proper human relationship. In your experience, how do people internalize maybe unknowingly and unconsciously some of the dominations that we've all been socialized under capitalism? So whether that's like breaking habits of what it means to be a coworker, um, thinking that we are in horizontal relationship and we're actually replicating traditional forms of, of hierarchy or domination, what are some of the common internalizations that people have to work through or have to transform or have to be provoked around in doing this work for those who are in signed up ready to go but don't realize that they're bringing some of the old ways to to the old ways because actually this is ancient but also to this this new future that we're building so you just said it right there i was (laughs) i was gonna lift up like we're contesting what even is traditional right like that's what all of these conversations are when we talk about book banning, critical race theory, what are the origins of this country? Uh, for those of you who are listening from the U.S., all of those things, you know, what e- what is a woman? Like all of these things are actually being contested. They're all up for debate and not in a post-modernity kind of nonsense way. 
which by the way, dig into that history because it turns out it was all CIA infiltration. Uh, <laughs> and they were like, we're it. literally gonna fund, <laughs> we're literally gonna fund these humanities departments to like distract everyone from the real world and the political economy and all the like messed up <laughs> shenanigans. Well, that's another that podcast. I would I would love just like the low-key CIA COINTEL pro operations that like we don't talk about enough. See, that. this is my problem is I want to have every conversation. <laughs> I get it. I'm I like, it. I can go, I can go into whatever. I'm like, we can talk about the CIA. We can talk about the Kardashians. I never watched their show, but we can talk about anything and I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe the, show, maybe the, the, the working title is Conspiracy Facts, but we'll put that in the... But I mean, the idea, the idea of actually posing and confronting those questions and working through them, I think is important and goes way beyond cooperative work or movement work. I mean, we are in a global cultural reckoning right now around this. All of the debate and consternation around, you know, what even is facts and information and misinformation and free speech and all of that. So it's important that we do it, not just as a defense, but but to take the question seriously. So what is a traditional structure? Y'all, humans have been running around for a couple million years. And most of that was not being a individualized free agent, that a lot of it was around association and interdependence and affiliation and rolling cooperatively, like as a crew. And there's also a side conversation that I'm only going to mention here because it will pop off like three, four years from now around how do we decolonize the cooperative tradition itself and the language of cooperatives, which were codified in 1848 in Rochdale, England, and and the whole history that the International Cooperative Alliance has sort of become the protectorate of um, going back over 100 years. Um, Even in the US, I'm, I'm the vice chair of the board for the National Cooperative Business Association, which has a long 100 plus year history at this point. You're doing a lot of um, stuff, Esteban. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, <laughs> there's a lot of tables just sitting there. I'm sorry. Keep going. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so that that is a conversation that we need to have as well. Not to say like, it's the hill to die on, but like, let's be real about reclaiming and recentering our histories and our traditions in part, because if we just seed that and say, capitalists, you own markets and corporations, you own structure and uh, white supremacy, you own the term tradition. Then we've already we've already lost. We've already ceded all of that. It's like y'all don't own this. We get to own structure. Yeah. You know, anarchists can own structure and talk about like what is your spokes council model and what are your your loops of accountability and who's reporting to whom and what is like rotating responsibility and how do we delegate things? It doesn't mean that everything needs to be flat. It doesn't mean that everything needs to be structureless. No, it means that we actually need to develop. This is what I mean about the kinds of conversations that I'm excited for all our people to be having five, 10 years from now, because that's where this is going. We are going to be engaged in a much more sophisticated set of thinking and developing and, and management, just another term that was taken from us um, around like how we steward, let's actually, let's use that one, yeah, <laughs> how, we, how one. we steward resources and how we co-govern inside of our workplaces and our communities, um, because that's actually what we're talking about when we talk about economic democracy, right? It's around expanding democracy to all of the other aspects of our lives, social and economically. And in doing so, it's reclaiming what I believe is an important history 
of our species. I mean, it's just like fundamental to what it means to be human. And these are structures that can help to amplify that in order to be positioned to address the crises of our time. I want to flip the script. I think that we're living in the alternative right now. This is not what was meant to be happening on this planet. And we're now seeing it. I mean, it's just irrefutable. And so what we need to insist upon when we talk about economic democracy is that that is how we live Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, in balance with the planet, in community with one another. That's how we address our needs, whether that's around health, uh, housing, just dignified work, all of those things, sustainable work, addressing every aspect of our lives and, and, and meeting the, the challenge of the climate. That's what is the way. Um, I, and I like, I, I like yeah. that a lot. I, I uh, did it was a discussant yesterday for a, a little symposium here on art. It was called artifact earth, right. Addressing you know, this stage of Anthropocene. And one of the things I talked about was the female sort of, you know, and, and the notion of mother and mother earth and, um, and what it meant to think more cooperatively instead of thinking more about conquest of nature and how we need to be thinking more about about those ways in which we connect with one another um, in cooperative living, right, in more humanistic relational living. Yeah, I enjoy how we can balance that with the the provocation from Donna Haraway, and this is going all the way back to the 70s, that human ways are not just about how do we idealize nature, goddess, Gaia, but that human ways are about technology, the technology of organization, the technology of tools, of communication, that when we think about ourselves not as some imagined, primitive, whatever, like prehistorical creature, but that humanity is fundamentally about this concept of a cyborg, right? So she discusses this in the, in the Cyborg Manifesto, um, and I think cooperatives are a piece of that. So speaking of which, cooperatives then are a tool. They're a tool to address problems when it's around housing. I mean, some of the most interesting stuff I think happening around cooperatives in this country are happening in the housing space. And one example is the uh, resident-owned communities, Rock USA. They are organizing trailer park residents to create land trusts where they buy the land and become asset holders, um, but also it's addressing some of the most impoverished and exploited communities all across the country. First of all, it busts that whole story or that myth that cooperatives are just for affluent people, that they're just for white hippies, that they're just for people in in like large affluent cities. This model started in New Hampshire and Maine and is now all over the place. Um, It's in the rural South. Um, And then on the other side, the permanent real estate cooperatives, which are really using the model of a land trust, some of the listeners might be familiar with land trust as a way of preserving neighborhood gardens, community gardens. Um, there's a way of using the land trust model to create cooperative housing and ensure that it's affordable to form real estate cooperatives. A lot of this is coming out of um, the East Bay permanent real estate cooperative. There's a group out there, EB Prec. Um, in Oakland um, that's that's really working with this in the opposite situation of the trailer park homes, which is like, yo, capitalist speculation has housing like off the charts. We're dealing with a homelessness epidemic and even rich millennial kids can't buy homes in the East Bay. <laughs> and like, what are we supposed to do for like black working mothers? And so they're figuring this out. This is led by 
uh, Black organizers who were using the cooperative model to address that kind of problem. And now uh, my homie Adriana is doing this in Philly, the Kensington Corridor Trust. Uh, so it's 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 something that is it's innovative. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the model. And as we learn stuff, is going to pop off. Like you're going to see it in all of these communities. And now we have a solution where whether it's an overpriced, gentrifying urban situation or whether it's an exploited rural situation, we've got two different kinds of models that can address those situations. I think we're seeing it around food issues. I've been mentioning food. Uh, we're seeing it around work and labor, especially around undocumented workers, um, low-wage workers who are shut out of economic prosperity. I mean, because we're being exploited. Like, what power, what tools do we have if we're not unionized, if we don't even have the formal process of being an employee? Um, if it's all under the table or if we're undocumented, what do we do about that? So using cooperative forms um, to actually get legal access to work. Because, of course, it's set up to benefit owning class people, where if, if you, I don't know, if you're like a French millionaire and you own a hotel chain in Chicago, you don't need an I-9, you don't need citizenship in order to show up and work at your own hotel in management or in marketing or whatever else you're doing on behalf of the business you own. Well, guess what? The poorest people also have access to that same kind of right, which is that if you co-own a business... That could be a cooperative um, formed as an LLC or another form. But if you own that business, even without formal working papers, you're allowed to do work and earn an income. It's not going to be a wage. You're not going to be a W-2 employee, but you're allowed to earn income from the business that you co-own. And so that's been really a, a breakthrough. Of the what we know from the, the data we've gathered, about two-thirds of the workforce inside of worker cooperatives are women. And there's a plurality of Latinx workers. Sometimes it changes depending on COVID had actually a big impact on a lot of immigrant workers. Um, so it's somewhere around, you know, 40 something percent white workers, 40 something percent Latinx workers, which does mean that when you add all the other workers of color, um, in addition, it's about 60 percent people of color who are inside of, of worker cooperatives. So, again, it troubles that that narrative of appropriation and white supremacy culture, which infiltrates everything that cooperatives are a solution for opting out and for sort of affluent people that I, I think really established itself from the 1960s and 70s, where that was uh, a movement and a moment. But the roots of cooperation go much deeper and have traditionally, even for white people, been for poor and working people. I mean, that is how we got electricity to settlers to like poor working <laughs> settlers in rural parts of the U.S. through electric co-ops. Um, that's how agriculture was developed for Black farmers in the Southeast, for white farmers, whether they were Amish or Mennonite or other kinds of white working people in the uh, Midwest and, and in the Mountain West, um, or really everywhere. I mean, upstate New York, using the cooperative form for agriculture, for dairy, for produce. You see it a lot in the Southwest as well. Yeah. And then that's also the tradition that, um, thankfully, Jessica, Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhart has reclaimed for us um, painstakingly in her book, Collective Courage, that tells the history of African-American solidarity economy practice and that tradition. And it turns out, I don't know why we don't all know this. Growing up, even in movement spaces, I didn't know this. But every, every leader involved in civil rights organizing was involved in solidarity economy organizing as well. They were all involved in cooperative projects. That's how Black people survived in this country, by forming 
susus and cooperatives and lending circles, whether that was for burials, whether that was for employment, whether that was for like, you didn't have access to the white people grocery store. So guess what? You got to set up your own. We don't have money to set up our own. So we're coming together to build it cooperatively, right? So she documents all of that. And you can find everyone from A. Philip Randolph to Fannie Lou Hamer to Ella Baker. They were all leaders in cooperative organizers. And in fact, speaking of decolonizing cooperative history, there is an effort now from the National Cooperative Business Association to recognize that leadership, especially among Black women from the cooperative tradition and, and actually induct them posthumously into the National Cooperative Hall of Fame. Yeah. I, I, one, I think all listeners should engage that text, Collective Courage. I think it has this dual function of like, it offers this historical grounding and this imagination while also being like very sobering about the struggle and about the, the need to like have a political courage to to understand that like the the systems that are established and are are dominating are not creating like easy space for this work right so that there there's always this push and pull but i, I want to expand to the macro a little bit cuz cuz you've kind of gone to like 5 to 10 years from now there's going to be a more sophisticated conversation um and you know what's really exciting about economic democracy is we we can speak about it in these really practical day to day what are you doing for 8 to 12 hours how are you feeding yourself and your loved ones? And then we can also talk about it in terms of like global transformative power and liberatory, like revolutionary trajectories. Um, and so That's wanna, my jam, straddling both. <laughs> I want to do that. I want to go into that straddle a little bit and talk about the macro. Um, as someone who organizes cooperatives and then can see how they are in conversation to each other, I feel like that's the piece of the sophistication that I yearn for is what are the challenges or excitements when the cooperation is not just within an internal entity or in a singular enterprise, but if we're talking about meeting the needs of humanity and building a healthier society, cooperatives have to cooperate, right? Like we need large-scale right. collectivity. So what this is my love language? Keep what, talking. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I'm showering you. What are the challenges and excitements of of the macro project of coordinating the intentions, the goals, the impact missions? of this cooperative democratic economic labor. I'm trying to update my story about this because in real time, we're seeing some of these things possibly shift. And what I mean by this is even eight months ago, I would have answered that question by saying the biggest challenge is that Americans really struggle with the concept, the practice, the culture of solidarity. The individualism runs deep. And I'm not talking right left because you can find. Mm -hmm. um, oh, the, let's get to it. Open up you the can bag. Find, <laughs> you can you can find the individual libertarian streaks among anarchists who are like, I will opt into what I affiliate with and what I join, and it's a very deep seated American culture that comes from, I don't want to say Puritan necessarily, but the sort of Protestant tradition, um, which which does have there's important strains to the sort of DIY of it all, but it needs to be in balance. And obviously, we're familiar with right-wing libertarianism, which is, we understand as, as we apply the label libertarianism to that. But I want us to be on the lookout for libertarianism across the spectrum, and especially on the left, because we're not as adept at spotting it, even though it is deep and it is pervasive. And by contrast, I'll say that when you look at the organizing traditions in a lot of traditionally or historically Catholic countries... You don't see this nonsense. 
Like there is, there is solidarity. And interestingly, you look at Canada, which bridges both, right? Quebec being a very Catholic province and the rest of Canada, Anglophone Canada being very Protestant. And where are their worker cooperatives? Two thirds of them are concentrated just in Quebec. You start something, people are like, we affiliate, we're part of it. We're doing the thing, which is a different challenge then from the more entrepreneurial culture from Anglophone Canada, from the US, where it's like, yeah, I want to start a thing. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start a new thing. How many nonprofits we have that have the same damn mission? There must be 3,000 nonprofits just on the left who are doing the same ass thing because they don't want to just cooperate and get over their egos and like do this. They're like, I don't know. I don't get along with Sheila no more. Like, I'm going to do the same thing. How many book publishers are there that like literally share a tradition? And it turns out in their history, it was like there was beef between this editor and that editor. And I'm going to found my own thing, right? You don't have that level of nonsense in Brazil, in Cuba, in uh, Italy, in France, in Spain, in a lot of Catholic countries, which is not to say, I'm not making a cultural argument about like, which is better. I'm literally just describing what's happening. <laughs> um, can, I, can I interject in, in your answer? Just to, to, yeah. So what I'm hearing in that framing, and, and I'm sorry, you, you, you haven't even like got all the way in it, but I'm, I'm receiving it already, is it challenges and also rubs up against also methods of reconciling and dealing with conflict that we can kind of remove from the economic sphere but is is more of a like social cultural philosophical grounding when you bring in the difference between the the catholic and the protestant tradition that we see that same thing in movements that are not around you know economics is like to the point of the nonprofits of folks are just splintering and fracturing and not being able to reconcile and that that this entity actually demands would you say like a a different relationship to conflict that is interesting i think the biggest struggle we have is around affiliation, solidarity, and connectivity. And I was starting to say that I feel much more hopeful now than I did previously. And there's a few signals to this. The level of solidarity that we saw in June of 2020 around not just police violence and not just racism generally, but specifically anti-Black racism, I think was instructive and I think we're going to be continuing to look back and recognize like what was that signifying about what people are ready for. And a lot of that is generationally. I mean, I don't want to paint too broad a brushstroke. I mean, what we saw was young people out in these streets. Okay. And that was multiracial. And that was a different kind of thing than what I experienced as this sort of like splintering liberalism of like, every identity and representation and like, we're going to put this individual on a magazine cover and this one as well. And now there's representation for trans people and queer people and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, I don't think that we're going to rainbow our way to liberation, but we can cohere and express our power by coming together and having solidarity and forming coalitions and structures that bind our power together. And that I think is really important. I didn't mean to make that sound dismissive. I think that some of what's important about the kind of spectacle of diversity and inclusion and representation is what it signifies for how we're uplifting leaders. I have felt more access to my own voice, my own leadership and being my full self as a queer, black, cisgendered immigrant, whatever. So, uh, you know, all of those things are interconnected. I just am concerned with, when 98% of the conversation is on Laverne Cox being on the magazine cover or 
Michelle Yeoh being on the red carpet, then we're not actually having the bigger conversation about what movements we're building. It's understandable because I think humans are built to follow narratives and stories with protagonists. And we, we need to develop more capacity to tell stories of, of groups, which is to say, strike Tober, baby, everything changes. We see great resignation. We start seeing labor militancy. We start seeing a resurgence of union drives and petitions to form unions at a, a rate that we literally haven't seen in my lifetime. And y'all, I'm now 41 years old on this earth. So yeah, I, I, that, that to me is hopeful that people are interested in joining and affiliating. There's a lot of barriers to it. I don't think we have the infrastructure and the institution building that we need for that. Um, see my previous comment about the nonprofit industrial complex or see Ruth Gilmore Wilson's article about the NPIC in, in all its complexity. And she connects that to the scholarship of Angela Y. Davis around what are the controlling and disciplinary practices of the state that are driving us into those forms of organizing, particularly the C3 nonprofit, um, as opposed to things that evade structure that are not formalized or incorporated, and that aren't waged. It is not a W-2 employment situation, um, or it is not the disciplinary processes of electing the treasurer and submitting your 990 and all the other things that we need to do. So there are important questions in that article, not just for what it says, um, and this is published in The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, more than a dozen years ago. And even then, Dr. Gilmore was referencing how the critique of the nonprofit industrial complex from Black movements back in the 60s had basically not changed. All that changed is that it went to scale. All that changed is that it's bigger and it co-opted more of our people. You know, one of the things you did is you wrote a foreword to a book, When to Talk and When to Fight. Um, so when do you talk and when do you fight? And what does it mean to fight? I think that that requires the kind of sophistication that Damon was was just inviting us, um, calling us into earlier. And I actually think, so maybe now we can start bridging a little bit into the abolition thing, because abolition forces us to make much more sophisticated kinds of assessments. Instead of saying, knee-jerk, here's our tool, we march. Here's our tool, we strike. Here's our tool, we cancel. To actually say, what's needed here? What is the power map? What's our relational map? What are we called to? Is this person part of our community or not? There are people who cause immense harm who are in our communities. And we do need to not just take responsibility for, for, for working with them and calling them in, but take responsibility for building the kind of world that doesn't need cages as the solution. Um, that doesn't need retribution as the solution, and where we can be centering survivors and our needs in order to be real about the complexity of all the things that are required when there is a moment of harm and what kinds of structures or leaders uh, we need to address those things. So when to talk and when to fight? Well, this is a book written by uh, Rebecca Subar, who's a, one of the founders and a incredible um, facilitator and negotiator uh, with a group called Dragonfly Partners based here in Philadelphia. She lays this shit out. I mean, she spent time at Harvard in their school. We're getting trained up on negotiation. She's done work in Palestine around 
negotiation. She's done work with progressive movements, navigating power brokerages. I mean, the kind of things that are important when you're talking about labor and strikes and contracts and collective bargaining. That's the world she's coming from. And she breaks it down and says, okay, listen, I have all this experience. Here's what matters. It's a short book. It is, it's, a, it's a tiny little thing. We should not fall back on just saying, "Welp, the opposition in this scenario is men and patriarchy, and therefore we should just fight. Or the opposition is the developer in a gentrifying situation, and therefore we should just fight. It's actually like, that's important information. Let's catalog it along with a lot of other things, including an assessment of our power, an assessment of what could become possible if we can talk. Are we going to be listened to? Are we invited at the table? Is our voice being respected? And if not, maybe we should just fight. But too often inside of movements, and again, I mean, I don't mean to harp on the COINTELPRO of it all, but- Harp. (laughs) It turns out they did actually uh, successfully infiltrate and dismantle the power in our movements um, for several generations. And I don't think that we fully reckoned with that. And so I, I wouldn't be saying this if I felt to me like we had properly been assessing the impact of that. We wouldn't, in other words, end up at the place of cancel culture and all of it, right? So I think that inside of movements, there needs to be much more space for tolerance, for disagreement, um, for not disposing of people because we might disagree on tactics or strategies. And so, yeah, maybe sometimes it is go form your own nonprofit because we just can't get along. But maybe sometimes it's go do that project or initiative or allow me to do mine. And let's just hang in there and still remain in community and still remain in touch because it turns out we have much more. The ultimate prize, we have the same liberatory horizon as our ultimate goal. We might disagree on our tactics. We might roll with different crews. Like if y'all people are running around disrespecting people's pronouns and yada, yada, then like maybe we're not going to affiliate at that level where my people are going to feel dispirited. But it doesn't mean we can't be in coalition together to fight for some stuff because the oppressor is large. (laughs) Yeah, the oppressor is large. And so that's what I talk about in that anecdote um, in my my forward to the book about when to talk and when to fight. So this is kind of um, a great segue into kind of our, our wind down question um, and, and using the, the, the metaphor that brings us here, this notion of the portal. And, and I want to kind of talk about possibility. Once we enter through this proverbial portal and we take these things seriously and our movements coalesce around these coalitions that allow us to engage the oppressor and create new space for ourselves. To you, Esteban, what is more possible once we go through this portal? I think our dignity and our humanity. I think actually what's possible is a sense of relief at the simplicity of living in balance. That there's something that feels really fraught about the moment we're in, even about recent history of feeling like, oh God, I got to catalog everything. And how do I be respectful of like your race and your gender and your pronouns and your class background and ableism and uh, oh God. And I'm, oh, and I'm so US centric. What about like the colonized history? And it just feels like it's oh, There's like this frenetic thing. And it's like, now I got to think about ecology. What is going on (laughs) here? You know? And it's like, actually it's an invitation toward simplicity. You know what? Here's another thing I want to reclaim. Sorry, I'm an external processor, so I'm literally just thinking about this in real time. The singularity has been co-opted by the libertarian techno white engineer right 
What if the singularity is our shit? What if it's a black abolitionist horizon? Here's what's on the other side of the portal is the black singularity that is about um, things being back in right relationship with the ecological systems, with the creatures around us, with our domestic life. And I don't mean in a traditional nuclear colonized kind of family unit, but I mean the interdependence and open sort of community of how we lean on each other and exercise emotional sophistication in the intimacy of our everyday lives. And intimacy should not just mean inside of a romantic relationship or inside of a familiar relationship. I mean, in the workplace, I mean, with your neighbors, right? So that's what's on the other side of that is that it actually should, we shouldn't be so breathless and so overworked. What's on the other side of this is rest, is dignity, the ability to be ourselves and to have that feel held have that feel seen, that we're taken care of. It's the trust fall of everything around us. And I think that democracy is part of how we get there. And you know that I don't mean the capital D democracy, the capital P politics, that it's economic democracy, meaning like the interstices of our our everyday lives. Um, So I think that's what's on the other side of it. And it does mean that once we've done that work, we have figured out not how to live in a utopian way that's post-conflict, but where conflict is just some other cycle that happens. Like when you think about the hydrological cycle and storm clouds rolling through, and sometimes it's violent rain and lightning, and sometimes it's just a gentle pitter-patter, and sometimes it's an overcast day and the clouds are just hanging out there and vibing, and sometimes it's no clouds and it's a beautiful sunny day. Like that that's what our lives can be like as well. And there's a lot of work between now and then because we've got centuries of racial capitalism and a carceral state and institutionalized patriarchy to dismantle along the way. Um, But it is not separate work. The work of dismantling that is not separate from the world of building and creating, you know, as abolitionist scholars remind us, abolition is about presence. What are we centering in our practices um, and in our principles that that very act of doing that centering recasts everything around us. It should feel like a different kind of, of work and one that doesn't feel like it's uphill work, but that feels like the fulfilling work of like gardening or doing childcare and hanging out with kids and things like that. Nice. What a beautiful way to end this and what a great place for you to take us through the portal. Thank you so much for having this, uh, hosting this gorgeous conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for for your time and all the work that you do. It, real quick, in the ways you would like to be found, you and your work would like to be found, where can people check you out? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> or you might uh, not want to be found. Yeah, it's a <laughs> weird to this. year. I'm so distributed. <laughs> no, definitely find me. Okay, you can okay. find me on social media. Twitter, um, Esteban Titos. Instagram, Estebanitos. You can find my crews at Aorta, aorta.coop, um, with the Worker Co-op Federation at usworker.coop. We also have our handles, respectively, on social media. Um, I'm a fellow with the Institute for the Future. I'm a fellow with the Ford Global Fellowship. I'm all, I'm all over the place. If you're looking, if you're doing the right work, you can find me. I'm a member with the Climate Community Project. There's just like stuff. <laughs> Depending on what you care about, you can find me. Thanks to Esteban Kelly for joining us on today's episode of Through the Portal. And thank you for listening and listening all the way through the end. 
You're the real MVPs. We'll be back next month with a new edition of Through the Portal, where we'll be digging deep into global justice. And so make sure you stay in tune with The Portal Project at sjiportalproject.com. Thank you to everybody at the Social Justice Initiative for all your hard work in making this possible. And we'll be back with another edition of this radical think tank. We will talk to you soon. Much love to the people. Right on.